I am frequently asked, what should board members know about compliance and the legal requirements under the anti-kickback statute, Stark Law, and the False Claims Act? Well, hold tight, and I will let you know. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the anti-kickback statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Today, we are going to be covering part two of what board members for health care organizations should know about compliance and also the legal requirements. In Stark Integrity Part 1 for board members, we discussed primarily the issues regarding the, an effective compliance program, but this episode is going to focus more on the fraud and abuse laws, and I just dropped the F-bomb. And I always tell people, especially when I was uh, you know, interfacing with physicians and board members, that I try not to drop the F-bomb, and that is the use of the word fraud. Because fraud has a very highly charged meaning, and the government likes to throw around the fraud word because what sometimes they classify things that are, I'll put in air quotes, fraud may not technically be fraud. It may just be mistakes that were made. Uh, But the government likes to use the F word. So in this episode, I will try to refrain from further using the F word fraud. But just to recap from part one, in part one, I talked about an effective compliance program having eight components of an effective compliance program. So here are the seven, just to recap, the designation of a compliance officer, having compliance policies and procedures, effective training and education, that's number three. Number four is auditing and monitoring. Number five is disciplinary guidelines. Number six is open reporting of compliance issues, especially a hotline. And number seven is detecting of offenses and corrective actions. And the unwritten number eight is the evaluation of a compliance program to determine whether or not it is effective. So from a board perspective, with respect to the seven components of an effective compliance program, board members should be receiving periodic reports regarding the status and implementation of the seven and eight components of a compliance program, uh, usually by the compliance officer making a report or a dashboard report or things like that. But board members need to understand, and I cannot overemphasize this, that they, the board, 
are responsible for the implementation and oversight of an effective compliance program. It is your fiduciary responsibility as a board member to make sure your organization has an effective compliance program. And so you need to be equipped with the knowledge of what is an effective compliance program, which I handled in part one, but also what are the risk areas involved. And again, I want to emphasize like I did in part one, as most board members do not have a healthcare background. So a lot of these terms that are floated around, and healthcare is full of great acronyms, but a lot of the terms are not customary in your business. And also some of the laws that I'm going to be talking about during episode number two, this episode, deal with the, well, again, I'm going to use the F word, the fraud and abuse laws that the government has and why you need to have an effective review or oversight of those laws, not understanding the granular details, but recognize the existence of the laws and what are the material components of the laws. And then remember, I, I talked about the Toomey case. The worst case scenario is first off, you'll have fines and penalties that your organization cannot afford, or you have to pay a very large sum of money that is otherwise diverting you know, money away from the accomplishment or focus of your mission to paying back a finer penalty to the government, or like in the Toomey case, where as part of their sell settlement, they had to sell substantially all of their assets to another healthcare system, in effect, losing local control. So those are some of the very negative things that can happen. So in this episode, I'm going to be talking about the big five statutes that are involved uh, with respect to healthcare regulatory oversight. But first, You'll need to understand that the largest payer of medical services in this country is the federal government. Uh, they do that not only through Medicare, but also funding, in part, the state Medicaid programs. So because the government is the largest payer of medical services in the country, they can make their own laws and rules with respect to the payment for those medical services. And primarily, all of the medical services that are paid for through the federal government are funded through the Department of Health and Human Services. And there's two primary divisions within the Department of Health and Human, Human Services. Now, Number one, you have the Office of Inspector General, commonly referred to as the OIG. The Office of Inspector General is like the FBI for the Department of Health and Human Services. So they do a lot of the oversight and investigations. And then also you have the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, so CMS. And CMS provides the, the payment mechanisms for the services rendered to beneficiaries, primarily Medicare beneficiaries, but they also fund through CMS the state Medicaid programs. And because some of the fines and penalties that I'll be talking about under the anti-kickback statute and also Stark Law are conditions for payment, then those are also connected with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS. Then you also have the, the judiciary. So you have the Department of Justice, the DOJ. The DOJ is responsible for the enforcement of federal laws. And they can also investigate, and usually whenever we have lawsuits, the Department of Justice is usually involved, and sometimes you can even have settlements uh, through the Department of Justice. So you have the three divisions of the federal government. You have the OIG, CMS, and the DOJ. And the purpose of these two parts, focusing on board members' duties and responsibilities, is not to go to the granular detail regarding 
how you actually report. Those are subject to other episodes within Stark Integrity. But here I'm just going to give you the five basic statutes and what each of these statutes entails and what you as board members need to know about with respect to these statutes. So the first one, and I call this one the granddaddy of them all, is the anti-kickback statute. Uh, The anti-kickback statute is a criminal statute. Now, this is where people a lot of times would say, well, this is the criminalization of healthcare. And this is if someone who either bills Medicare or services are paid for or reimbursed through the Medicare program, if they financially induce referrals or other business, then that financial inducement, if it's if there's intent to induce those referrals or that other business that's in part uh, reimbursed for or paid for by Medicare, then that is a criminal violation. So under the anti-kickback statute, it is illegal. For this case, I'm going to use the hospital, but this could be any provider, like I said in part one, for a hospital to financially induce a referral source like a physician to refer. Now, there's a bunch of safe harbors, but the safe harbors under the anti-kickback statute are very narrow. So what am I talking about? Well, I'm going to go back to the that dinner example that I gave in part one. If you have a chief executive officer take a referring physician out to dinner and the physician and the CEO talk about referrals and the CEO tells the referring physician, one of my purposes for taking you out to dinner is to encourage you to refer more business to us then that creates the what we call in the legal field the nexus the legal nexus i have now given you a financial benefit the dinner with the intent to encourage or induce you to refer now there has to be some type of what we call remunerations there has to be some type of compensation to financially induce and I always, when I speak on this on a national basis, um, I was in-house for a Catholic organization, so you'll you'll get this at the end. But you can hope for referrals, you can plan for referrals, you can expect referrals. Um, and as I said, I since I represented a Catholic organization, I always would tell the sisters who were over the Catholic organization, I said it it is not illegal to pray for referrals, but you just cannot pay for referrals. So another thing that would violate the anti-kickback statute is let's say that a hospital has a medical office building and they're leasing that space at below fair market value. Then that would not fit within a safe harbor under the anti-kickback statute. And if the government can prove that there was a necessary intent to provide a lower than fair market value lease rates, for those physicians to occupy space in the medical office building with the intent to capture those physicians' referral streams, then that is a criminal violation under the anti-kickback statute. And I've got many episodes dealing with commercial reasonableness and fair market value, but for the most part, as long as services are being paid for at fair market value and the services that are being paid for are commercially reasonable, it is unlikely that the government will be able to make the necessary nexus, the intent to induce referrals. So where can we go wrong? Well, a couple of things can go wrong. Number one is somebody will send out a stupid email. And I have seen and reviewed these stupid emails where somebody said, well, we have to do this because if we don't do this, 
this physician will take all of the referrals to our competitor. That email, which is fully discoverable, will be able to show the, the, the nexus between the financial benefit that's being provided and the intent to induce referrals. Another way, and this actually was in the St. Joseph case that brought me in-house uh, as the compliance officer, that it was clearly expressed in the board minutes and it said that if we did not do this deal with these two physicians, these physicians would take all of their referrals over to the competitor. That was embedded into the board minutes. And so the government uh, had a heyday with that and basically said even the board minutes were supporting the fact that as an organization, collectively, they knew better. And therefore, the whole arrangement was set up with the intent to induce referrals. And so there's personal liability that can attach under the anti-kickback statute. So you know, physicians who are involved in the inappropriate referral could go to jail like they did in South Bend. There's other physicians who have went to jail. Administrators can go to jail. And God forbid, and we hope that you don't want to be in this position, that no board members are targeted uh, for this uh, arrangement. So as a board member, you always want to be asking, I want to make sure that this arrangement is fair market value, is commercially reasonable, complies as much as possible with a safe harbor under the anti-kickback statute, and we're not doing this with the intent to induce referrals. We may hope that referrals are going to come through this arrangement, but we can't create the financial arrangement with the intent to induce referrals. So that's the anti-kickback statute. That's the criminal statute. That's the statute you do not want to be discussing with anybody from the Department of Justice. Um, so going on now to the Stark Law. The Stark Law is a civil statute, and just like with the anti-kickback statute, it is a condition for billing. But since it's a civil statute, uh, if you have a financial arrangement with a referring physician, the anti-kickback statute can involve other providers of medical services and not necessarily a physician with the MD or DO at the end, end of their name. Uh, that could be like a medical provider. You could have inappropriate inducements between like a laboratory and a hospital. That can implicate the anti-kickback statute. However, for the Stark Law, a physician must be involved. And physician is broadly defined as the physician. So I've heard it said the guy or the gal with the MD or DO at the end of their name, but also their immediate family members, their spouse, their children, their parents, their grandparents, and the like. So those are all defined as physicians. So if, if a physician physician has a financial arrangement uh, with what we call a designated health service entity, by way of example, a hospital, a laboratory, a home health agency, then the entire financial arrangement has to squarely fit within one exception under the Stark Law. So you start with the premise that if you have a financial arrangement with a referring physician, then that physician cannot refer to the hospital unless the entire financial arrangement squarely fits within one of the exceptions. And there's ownership exceptions and compensation exceptions. I'm not going to go into great detail because I've got other episodes that go into granular detail with the Stark Law, so you can do that and listen to those. But if you do have a financial arrangement that Stark applies to and do not fit within an exception, 
then you cannot refer you cannot bill Medicare for any referrals from that physician. And if you have received reimbursement from that physician, you cannot retain that reimbursement that you have received. So by way of example, if you have an oncologist that you happen to have a refer a relationship like above fair market value compensation, it would not fit within an exception under the Stark Law, then every single referral that that physician makes to the hospital either has to be repaid or you can't uh, you can't bill for, for those referrals that are coming from that physician. So you know, real quickly, if you have a medical directorship by way of example, and you pay the physician $5,000 a year for three years and it does not fit within an exception, even though you paid the physician only $15,000 over that three-year period, it's not the $15,000 that's the target. It's what the hospital has received in reimbursement from the Medicare program. So if that physician refers, let's say, $5 million of a business that is reimbursed by the Medicare and Medicaid programs. It's that $5 million over the three-year period that has to be paid back. So you have an inappropriate financial arrangement that's $15,000, but it could set up the organization to have to repay $15 million because that financial arrangement with that referring physician did not squarely fit within all of the components of an applicable exception. And for the most part, there are exceptions that would apply both for compensation and ownership. So that's when hospitals need to lean on someone like me, a reputable healthcare attorney or another healthcare attorney in order to ensure that they comply fully with the Stark Law. The next big statute is the False Claims Act. Primarily, there's the Civil False Claims Act, but there's also a criminal aspect to it, too. Under the False Claims Act, if you bill knowingly, and knowingly means you either have actual knowledge, reckless disregard for the facts, or intentional indifference for the law, then the if you bill, and you bill inappropriately, then that could be the submission of a false claim. Or if you have already billed and later find out, like you have a Stark Law violation, that you're not entitled to keep that money and go ahead and decide to keep it anyway, that's called a reverse false claim. So if you bill for that and receive the reimbursement and someone alleges that you violated the False Claims Act, it's treble damages. So take that $15 million example that I gave you. If they kept the $15 million, they have to multiply that by three. So now if you multiply that by three, we're now talking that we have $45 million of potential repayment plus, and this is a big plus, a fine that will will be between $11,803 up to $23,607 per claim submitted. Now, that increases annually, and the government tells us what that increases. It started off off as $5,500 up to $11,000 fine, but now because of the inflation, it is up to $23,607 per claim submitted. So even if we bill for one lab test, and let's assume that you receive a reimbursement of only $2 for that lab test. If the False Claims Act is implicated, you take that $2 times three, that's the treble damages. So now we're up to $6. 
and then you then you would have to uh, apply the twenty three thousand six hundred seven dollars per claim submitted. So you take that and multiply that by the number of tests that you uh, actually build for. So that's why that a lot of times when the False Claims Act gets implicated, these fines and penalties become very high. And also under the False Claims Act, you can have an individual called a quitam relator, but an individual bringing a case on behalf of the government. So if we don't clean up the issue internally by somebody reporting it through our compliance reporting mechanisms and they decide to go to the government, there are Quitam lawyers out there that are advertising on late night TV to ask the employees to bring these issues to their attention or Medicare beneficiaries. And if they bring the suit and they're successful, like in the case of the Halifax was $86 million, then the Quitam relator can get anywhere from 15 to 25% of what was collected by the government. And their lawyer also gets paid their normal fee. So the Quitam lawyers not only get their normal normal fee, but they also are going to get a percentage of whatever the Quitam relator uh, is able to collect. And then in very egregious cases under the False Claims Act, that can be critical, uh, criminal. Next, we have the exclusion statute that the government, usually through the DOJ or the OIG, has authority to exclude providers from continuing to participate in the Medicare program. So especially if there's an anti-kickback statute violation, then they can exclude a provider and then you're put on the exclusion list and you go, can go on the OIG website and look for excluded providers and you're going to see the whole list of excluded providers. Some of them are entities and some of them are individuals. Uh, so you can be excluded in, uh, from participation in the Medicare program. And if that happens to a hospital, most likely that means doors are closed uh, because in a lot of hospitals, anywhere from 50 to 60 percent of their revenue is derived from the Medicare and Medicaid program. Then lastly, we have the civil monetary penalties law. And this also has permissive exclusion that the an individual or entity can be excluded. And you can... Uh, the civil monetary penalties law, it's sort of duplicative from the False Claims Act and the anti-kickback statute, but if you present a claim that is not justified, meaning an, uh, just an overpayment, or that you have a violation of the anti-kickback statute, or you vi violate the Medicare assignment provisions, or provide services that are not medically necessary, or you violate the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, that's EMTALA, uh, or you make false statements or misrepresentations with respect to your provider agreements with Medicare or Medicaid, then civil monetary penalties can kick in. And usually the settlement for those are about 1.5 of what you have received in reimbursement. So a lot of times if you discover these issues and self-report, you can self-report under the civil monetary penalties and hope that you do not have a quitam relator that is going to hit the organization with a potential false claims act. So again, the five big statutes, and so I guess this is uh, Captain Integrity punch point number one, there are five main statutes that apply that create this, well, I'll call them air quotes, fraud and abuse allegations or potential recovery on behalf of the government. Uh, so this is the anti-kickback statute, the Stark Law, uh, the civil monetary penalties, the exclusion provisions, as well as the False Claims Act. 
Captain Integrity Punch Point Number Two because it implicates the directly the anti-kickback statute and the Stark Law is ensuring that your organization has a regimented process to review financial arrangements that they have with referral sources, primarily physicians. So have a regimented regimented process that you can validate not only compliance with the Stark Law but also looking at fair market value and commercial reasonableness. So one of the gold standards in an organization is to have this process not populated by interested parties, so not populated by physicians who are approving of their own compensation, but it's uh, performed by, let's say, administrators or even possibly uh, board members who are reviewing the documentation, reviewing the legal review, reviewing the fair market value, reviewing the commercial reasonableness of the arrangement, and and ensuring that we meet all those standards before we enter into a compensation arrangement. And lastly, Captain Integrity punch point number three is as a board member, you need to be comfortable that high-risk financial arrangements, including financial arrangements with referring physicians, are receiving legal review to comply with both the anti-kickback statute and also the Stark Law by a competent healthcare attorney. And I want to emphasize the word competence because I've been negotiating deals with with attorneys who may not specialize in these laws all the time. And a lot of times they will uh, approach the issues from a business perspective, a business lawyer's perspective, but healthcare is totally different. So these rules are unique to the healthcare industry. So you'll want to make sure that with these high risk arrangements that they're being reviewed and validated by competent healthcare attorneys. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.